sermon text today comes from Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and verse 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. This is the word of our Lord. We pray. Dear Jesus, we have one more Sunday in Advent. We have one more chance to pause here and, and meditate, to fill our hearts with, with your words. Uh, send your Holy Spirit to us this morning to strengthen us and equip us in our faith and to motivate us and excite us to celebrate what you did for us beginning at Christmas. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, welcome to the final sermon of our Advent series. This is week number four of our series called Coming Soon. And throughout this series, we've been talking, right, about signs and prophecies that God made along the way to let people know that the Savior was coming soon. Um, what have we learned from this series? It's an interesting kind of a series because we picked like our top four, but I think you could pick 20 or 30 or 40 different prophecies that God made along the way. What do we learn, though, from all these prophecies? I think there's two things we learn. Uh, the first one is that we're reminded of God's power. When God announces an event, you know, a thousand years of, ahead of time, and then he does it exactly the way that he said he was going to do it with no mistakes, it makes it very clear that God is in complete control of what he's doing. God has absolute power. We can see that from God thousands of years ahead of time, prophesying what he will do. The second thing that we're reminded of by these prophecies and their fulfillments is God's grace. Because if you think about it, God could have left his people in the dark with no idea what was coming with the Savior. But instead, when it came to the Savior of the world, God took pains to announce this in all these ways, sometimes thousands of years ahead of time, so that people could be clinging by faith to that Savior before he even entered the world. Does that make sense? So when God says something way ahead of time and then he does it, that shows us how powerful God is, but it also shows us how loving he is that he takes the time to announce this for his people. Now, during this Advent season, we've seen God's power and his grace in a number of ways. We've seen it through Jesus' genealogy and all the people that were included and all the promises along the way. Uh, we have seen it through the ministry of John the Baptist, the, the one who would go before the Savior, and God talked all about him before he was there, and then when he came, he talked all about the Savior before he was there. And then finally, we saw God's power and God's grace through the miracle of the virgin conception, which, again, prophesied 700 years before it happened. But today's prophecy is a little bit different. Uh, the previous three sermons in this series were all about who the Savior is going to be. Today's sermon is about what that Savior was going to do specifically. So our sermon text comes through a prophet named Jeremiah. He lived about 600 BC. And once again, we'll hear the opening line. It starts like this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Does that sound pretty good? I mean, who doesn't want a king that's going to be wise and do what's just and right? Like, this sounds like a good thing. If it sounds good to us, though, this sounded way, way better to the people at Jeremiah's time because their current king was doing none of these things. His name was King Zedekiah. 
which is an ironic name. The Lord is my righteousness. And that is not how he lived. King Zedekiah was evil and corrupt, and he's following a pattern of 30 years worth of evil and corrupt kings before him. And to give you an example of how bad things had gotten, um, you know, the whole northern kingdom had already been deported by the Assyrians. Just Judah was left. And here's their horrible king, Zedekiah. So God sent the prophet Jeremiah to go talk to the king. And here is what God said. Go down to the palace. By the way, this is right before our sermon text, exact same time. Go to the palace of the king and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you the one who sits on David's throne, and you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who is being robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner or the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you're careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in, in chariots and horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. And you know the history. It, it did become a ruin. Like it all fell apart and the southern kingdom of Judah got exiled as well. And the reason is because, is because it became more and more clear over time that the king, along with his officials and his political cronies and his advisors, and along with most of the people, the king simply did not care what God said at all. And he proved it, and they proved it by the way that they treated God's messengers. So I'm going to very briefly here give you a couple of highlights, lowlights of uh, the prophet Jeremiah's ministry. So I'm, I'm glad I get to serve it in town and not do what Jeremiah was doing. So here's three lowlights from his ministry. The first one, God told Jeremiah to make a visual aid for his sermon. You know, kind of like we did with the tooth, toothpaste, whatever. So, but God told him, I want you to make a yoke, a yoke like oxen would wear and put it around your neck. And this is going to symbolize the yoke of slavery and exile that you're all going to have to bear now because of your idol worship and unbelief. So Jeremiah makes this yoke. He puts it on. And he's standing in a temple courts preaching. And then the much more popular false prophet named Hananiah came walking up to Jeremiah and just smashed the yoke off of him to the cheers and the roars of the crowd and said, this is how God is going to smash the yoke of our enemies. You know, don't listen to this Jeremiah. He's a fool. And the crowd goes wild. So, I mean, this is like if you guys rush and kick over the podium and don't listen to this guy. So, I mean, how much more clearly could you show that you just have absolutely no respect for God's prophet at all? They're like, get him out of here. We want to listen to Hananiah. We like his words better. Second low light from Jeremiah's ministry on a different day. This one bothers me just thinking about it. God told Jeremiah to write down the past 20 plus years of his prophecy all at once for the people to hear and for the king to read. And that's fine if you have like a word processor and a computer. But Jeremiah is sitting there with this probably papyrus scroll and he's painstakingly one Hebrew letter at a time writing backwards, probably smearing his hand. It's taking him forever. He fills up this massive scroll with 20 plus years worth of prophecy, gives it to the king, and guess what the king does with it? On a cold winter's day, he sits in a chair with his scribe next to him. He has the scribe read to him aloud from that scroll. And every time the scribe finishes a little section, the king cuts it off and puts it in his fire pot to warm his feet. It's like reading the Bible and just ripping out each page and burning it. Like how much more blatantly could you say, 
I don't care what God says. And this is the king. Third low light from Jeremiah's ministry. Um, God sent him again to speak his word to the king, and, and now the king tries to kill him, and he ends up instead getting saved and put under arrest in prison. And then some official takes Jeremiah and throws him into an abandoned cistern, which thankfully had no water in it or he would have drowned. But Jeremiah sunk so deeply into the mud that later they had to send a detachment of 30 men pulling on ropes to pluck him back out of that mud and back into like the land of the living. So all of which goes to say, there were some serious problems in Judah at the time of our sermon text. And it was way more than just financial corruption or oppression of the fatherless and widow or mistreatment of foreigners. It was also just like absolute blatant disregard for anything God had to say. No wonder God's people got exiled. Right? I mean, from the king at the top down to the commoners at the bottom, like righteousness was nowhere to be found at this time and in this place. And yet God speaks through his prophet. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And we say, finally, I mean, this is way overdue. It's been overdue for 30 years, but much longer than that. The people of Judah have not had a good king in forever. But Jeremiah's next words give us a hint that this righteous branch who is coming is going to be much more than just a really good earthly king. He's going to be something much bigger, uh, much deeper, and more personal. And these are the next words. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. So I want to talk to you just for a minute this morning about that word righteousness. So what does this word righteous mean? You know, I say righteous, you say what? We kind of talk about this in Bible study, right? Maybe you hear righteous, especially if you just watched Finding Nemo, and you're thinking, that, remember that little turtle that was like, righteous? You think of like a surfer dude, like catching some gnarly waves, like righteous. Uh, that's one way that this word is used, not how the Bible uses it. Um, another one, maybe more common because we don't live on like the coast of California, right? Another one that this was mentioned when we talked about it before church was self-righteousness. We hear that word righteous and we think of someone saying, well, I'm better than everybody else. Um, the Bible does address that topic, but this is not the picture that's there with this word righteous. Uh, the basic meaning of the word righteous, which by the way, the Bible uses more than 500 times, the basic meaning here is the idea that something is perfectly straight, perfectly aligned, perfectly in tune. So imagine, for example, that you're trying to draw a straight line. Uh, if you don't have a ruler, like no matter how good of a job you do, even if you're standing up drawing on the wall, like it's going to eventually start to, to waver and curve. But if you have a ruler or a straight edge like this, it aligns your line perfectly. So that's kind of like righteousness, you know, perfectly aligned. We talked about a right angle, right? It's exactly 90 degrees. It's right. It's correct. Um, another way of thinking about this would be, imagine that you're tuning a musical instrument. Do we have any band orchestra folks here? I'm, I wish I was you guys. I, I respect you guys. So what is, what is this? It's a tuning fork. And it's specifically designed to you know, vibrate at this exact way so that it produces a constant pitch. Usually it's the note A. And you could use a tuning fork to tune up, I think it's usually the oboe, 
And then the oboe plays an A and everybody tunes into it. So they're all tuned into this one perfectly clear pitch that's you know, right on the money. Again, this is kind of like righteousness. It's perfectly dialed in, perfectly straight, perfectly in tune. So with these kinds of pictures in mind then, how does the Bible use this word? Well, it makes sense that the Bible would describe God as being righteous because he's perfect and he's holy and he's pure. And it makes sense that the Bible would even describe God as the righteous judge. Because if something is perfectly right and correct, then that's the standard by which everything else is measured. It also makes sense that the Bible would describe human beings as being unrighteous. And Paul said that in our second reading. He said, there is no one righteous, not even one, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, God is righteous, this perfect moral standard. Human beings are unrighteous. We're twisted, we're corrupt, we're fallen. And these are not particularly novel concepts, are they? I think we know that there's kind of this gap between people and God. I think just about every religion in the world, you could make the argument, is really trying to deal with this problem. God is righteous and we are not. So how can we get ourselves connected to God? Well, here is the novel concept that we find in God's word. The Bible uses this word righteousness in a way that is totally unexpected and is totally unique among all the religions of the world. According to the Bible, God decided that he's going to solve this problem by connecting with us. And God did that on the basis of a very special person sent down from heaven to earth to rescue us. And what is the name of that special person who came from God to us to make the connection? His name is the Lord, our righteousness. So don't miss this point. It's so important. What God is saying here and in other places in scripture is that his righteousness and his correctness and his perfect alignment can be distributed to you, to me. Paul makes that point so beautifully in Romans chapter 3, where we heard these verses before. He said, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one's going to be declared righteous in God's sight, even by the works of the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, and that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Righteousness, correctness, perfect alignment that is given this is like a ruler that magically straightens every line that it touches. Or it's like a tuning fork that just instantly tunes every instrument it comes into contact with. This is a God who reaches out and touches his people and makes them righteous. So how does God reach out to us? How does God touch us? How does God make contact? It's by becoming one of us. It's through taking on human flesh. It's through Jesus who came here to make contact with us, to bring God's righteousness to us by living out a perfectly righteous life in our place. So this concept, perfect righteousness being given from God to you, that brings so much depth and beauty to what we think of when we're looking at Jesus. Right? As you look at this tiny little baby tucked into the manger, which is probably far less comfortable and cozy than this particular picture, but we'll leave this one up there. As you think of that little tiny baby in the manger, and then as you picture what is going to happen here, you picture that three-year-old toddler who grows up perfectly, quietly, obeying and respecting his parents. And as you picture that well-behaved youth 
who's growing every day in favor with God and with mankind. And looking a little further ahead, as you picture that teacher, that devoted teacher who never gets tired of studying God's word and minding out the beauty that's there and then sharing that with everyone that he can, never gets tired of it. As you picture that uh, miracle worker who will stay up all day and all night healing the sick and helping people who are hurting and pouring out his love because this is just what he has to do for every last person to the point of exhaustion. Someone using their life for others all the time in that way. As you picture this innocent man being lifted up on the cross, hoisted up for crucifixion with nails through his hands and what are the words coming out of his mouth? He's praying for the people who are hurting him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Every minute of this selfless life that's going to come, as you visualize these things, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? It's not just a man. It's not just the Son of God. It's your righteousness. It's the only perfectly selfless, loving life, God-fearing life without a mistake that has ever been lived in the entire history of the world. It's a life that's perfectly straight, perfectly aligned, perfectly tuned, and it's being lived as God's gift for you. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, your righteousness. Merry Christmas. So along with this righteousness then, then comes other gifts of God as well. Because remember what else Jeremiah said, kind of circling back to the beginning. What else did he say about this promised king who was coming? Not only will he be our righteousness, but he will also be a king who will reign wisely and will do what is just and right in the land. So let's think about this, what, doing what is just and right in the land. We've talked about in Zedekiah's time how corrupt it was and the king himself is very corrupt and hurting the foreigner and everything else. But what about by Jesus' time? Things hadn't gotten any better. Now the morally corrupt Roman Empire had taken over the entire world and Judah had become just one province of it. Now it's called Judea. Still tons of corruption, injustice. What about today? 2,000 years after Jesus, have things gotten so much better today? Has human society outgrown the problems that Jeremiah talked about 2,700 years ago? Um, problems like the robber, the oppressor, the problem of people doing violence to foreigners, shedding innocent blood. Or have we outgrown today the attitude that says sometimes, I don't care what God tells me, or I don't want to listen to God's word, not today, not on this topic. Our world is still broken. Our world is still far from righteous. Our hearts are still broken. We are still flawed by sin, and by ourselves, we are far from righteous. But as we look with such frustration at our world and at our hearts, and we're saying, where is the justice and righteousness here? We look again at Jesus, and now we see it. Jesus, who did what was just and right in this world 2,000 years ago, and Jesus, who works through us to do what is just and right in this world today. And most of all, Jesus, who has won for us a home in a different world, where everything at last, everything will be perfectly straight, perfectly aligned, perfectly in tune. A world as worlds should be, where injustice and oppression are dead and gone and never to be seen again.
So there is a whole lot lying in that manger, isn't there? There is a wise and just king who's continuing to show his wisdom and justice to the world through us today. There is a heavenly kingdom that is waiting for us and for all who believe in the Savior. And there's enough right lying in that manger to make up for all the wrong that the world has ever produced. Praise God for that gift of his righteousness for all of us. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your righteous Savior.